Have you ever been afraid to go to sleep? Have you ever turned off the lights, closed your eyes, and realized how completely vulnerable you are when you're unconscious? Have you ever heard a noise in the dark and ignored it, convincing yourself that you are completely safe in your own home? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who will happily laugh at people who believe in ghosts, but also never in a million years spend a night in a haunted house. This week, the story of a gruesome octuple murder in a quiet farming town in Villisca, Iowa, and why, after more than 100 years, given the surprising number of similar murders, this one still fascinates us. On November 7th, 2014, at 12.45 a.m., 37-year-old Robert Stephen Lorson Jr. desperately called his friends for help. His friends were just outside the house, and when they ran in to help Robert, they found him lying on the floor, bleeding from a stab wound in his chest. There was no one else in the room. Robert had stabbed himself in the chest. It wasn't a suicide attempt, as far as anyone knows. After surviving the incident, Robert has refused to make any statements about what happened to him that evening and what compelled him to stab himself. He says he's remaining silent out of respect for the family. Which family Robert meant is up for interpretation. He could have been referring to Darwin and Martha Lynn, who owned the house he was in when the incident occurred. Or maybe his own family? But chances are the family Robert was respecting was the Moore family. Which is strange, considering the Moore family had all been dead for over a hundred years at that point. In fact, Josiah and his wife, Sarah Moore, had likely died in the very room in which Robert had stabbed himself. But how did Robert know about the Moores? And what made him stab himself in their bedroom more than a hundred years after their deaths? On the morning of June 10th, 1912, in the tiny town of Villisca, Iowa, Mary Peckham noticed her next-door neighbors, the Moors, hadn't been outside yet. It was 7 a.m., there were chores to be done, but the Moore house was eerily still. Mary knocked on the door and got no answer. She tried opening it and found it was locked. Something was definitely not right. She let the Moors' chickens out and then called Josiah Moore's brother, Ross. When Ross arrived, he knocked on the doors and windows, yelling to try to rouse someone inside. Failing at that, he used his own key to let himself in. He crossed through the silent parlor and into the downstairs bedroom, where he found the bodies of two small children, partially covered by blood-stained sheets and a gray coat. He told Mary to call the sheriff and wisely left the house. I'm sure he knew that whatever was in the upstairs bedrooms was not something he wanted to see. City Marshal Hank Horton arrived on the scene with doctors J. Clark Cooper and Edgar Howe and Wesley Ewing, the minister of the Morris Presbyterian Congregation, followed shortly by the county coroner and another doctor, Dr. F.S. Williams. What they found inside the Moore house was, to put it mildly, a fucking nightmare. And I'm going to pause here to say, if you're at all squeamish about violence, especially to children, you should stop here. 
All six members of the Moore family and two other children who had spent the night had been murdered in their beds while they slept. The scene was horrific, bloody, and confusing. According to what the team could put together, someone came into the house through an unlocked door. They removed the chimney on a lantern and bent the wick so that when lit, it would only give off a faint light. Enough to see by, but not wake anyone. They picked up Josiah's axe and silently moved upstairs. The killer most likely started with Mr. and Mrs. Moore, striking Josiah first and Sarah after him. I don't know how the investigators were able to determine which one of them was struck first, but you know me, not a forensics expert. They did know for sure that whoever had done this had gouged the ceiling above Mr. and Mrs. Moore's bed as they wielded the axe. The killer then went down the hall to the next bedroom. There, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Catherine, 7-year-old Boyd, and 5-year-old Paul all slept. One by one, the killer struck them on the head with the axe, killing each one before they had a chance to realize what was happening. Next, the killer went downstairs to where 8-year-old Ina and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger, the Moore children's friends, were sleeping. It's likely that Lena woke up, probably hearing Ina cry out when she was struck or just from the movement next to her. The way Lena's body was situated led the investigators to believe that she had woken up either before she was struck or after a non-lethal blow and had squirmed down the bed, possibly trying to get away. Why else, investigators thought, would her nightgown be rolled up above her waist, exposing her bare downstairs region? Look, she was 12. This is really hard to talk about. There are images I just don't feel like invoking of a murdered 12-year-old girl. Lena had a blood stain on her thigh and what investigators thought was a defensive wound on her arm. What's incredible to me about that is how in the world anyone could tell one bloodstain from another. I've said this before and I'll say it again, I've never hacked anyone to death. So far be it from me to say decisively what the aftermath of something like that might look like, but I'm fairly confident it's incredibly messy. Like, blood everywhere. The description of what this person did to these poor people brings to mind the term bloodbath. I don't know how any blood stain could be differentiated from any other blood stain. Turns out, surprise, surprise, investigators were most definitely wrong about how and why Lena's body was found in the position it was. And I'll get to that, but I'm honestly trying to put it off as long as I can because it's awful. After murdering everyone in the house, the killer then took their time to methodically go back through the house and eviscerate each person's face with the axe. That's all I'm going to say about that part. It's bad. Suffice to say, their faces were unrecognizable. After that was done, the killer took the time to cover each victim's face, either with sheets or clothes. Then they covered every mirror in the house, which was a pretty common practice when someone died in a house. But they also took a two-pound slab of raw bacon from the icebox, eventually leaving it wrapped in a dishcloth in the downstairs bedroom where the Stillinger girls had been sleeping. Investigators also found a wash bin filled with bloody water. Before 5 a.m., when the sun would rise and neighbors would be starting their day, the killer apparently left, taking the house keys with them and locking all the doors behind them. 
It's actually remarkable that investigators were able to find even that small amount of information from the scene because after the first team had gone in and discovered the bodies, do you know what they did? They let about a hundred looky-loos from the neighborhood traipse through the house to see for themselves. Never mind that whoever had done this horrific act could still have been in the house. Never mind all the fingerprints everyone was leaving everywhere. Never mind the piece of Mr. Moore's skull that someone took as a souvenir. I don't know who this person was, but he would have been my first suspect. I'm no early 20th century small town detective, but it seems to me that the guy who took a part of one of the victim's skulls just for shits and giggles should maybe come in for questioning. But the detectives on the case didn't seem to question whoever that was. And here's something that's bound to shock you. As you'll find out, after letting 100 people walk around a crime scene and take body parts away, the investigation into the Moores and Stillinger's murder was not an example of good police work. Police found very few clues at the crime scene. It may be because whoever had committed the crime was exceptionally thorough in erasing any trace of himself, or because half the town came trampling through the house like a herd of sweaty, red-faced white guys headed for the all-you-can-eat buffet at Sizzler. The only physical clue left behind was a short piece of keychain that was somehow determined to not belong to the Moors. The keychain was found near the slab of bacon in the downstairs bedroom, so I suppose it's possible it belonged to one of the Stillinger girls, but that seems unlikely. I don't think most people were in the habit of giving children keys to their own houses. Hell, most people didn't even lock their doors anyway. And what would a kid need with a key or a keychain? Then again, who knows? The keychain wouldn't prove useful to the investigation anyway. Honestly, it seems like investigators had literally nothing, so anything they did find, they were like, huzzah, look at this. So they had nothing. No fingerprints, no footprints, nothing. And of course, a complete lack of information didn't stop people from pointing fingers. The first suspect the people of Villisca, Iowa, zeroed in on was Frank Jones, respected member of the local Methodist church, owner of a farm equipment business, and state senator. Despite being a pretty prominent guy in the town, people thought he had two possible motives for the murder. Josiah Moore had worked for Frank Jones as a salesman before the two had a falling out. Jones apparently required a six-day work week with hours of 7 a.m. to 11 p.m., In 1907, Moore was like, I'm out, and took the John Deere account with him. If you don't know, John Deere is like the McDonald's of farm equipment. Like, sure, there are other places to get cheap burgers at 3 a.m. after a night of Jaeger bombs, but you're going to McDonald's. The two men apparently went so far as to cross the street to avoid each other in town, which was the early 1900s version of blocking someone on all your socials. Mrs., you'll never guess what Josiah Moore did to me today. Did he smack you in the face? Worse. Challenge you to a duel? Much worse. He crossed the street to avoid me when he saw me coming. Girl, put your big boy pants on and get a hold of yourself. Honestly. 
Five years is a long time for a rivalry to grow and fester. It could be that by 1912 and one too many humiliating street crossing encounters, Frank Jones lost his cool. That seems unlikely to me. Like if Josiah Moore quitting his job and taking a big account with him was enough to put Frank Jones into a murderous rage, something tells me Frank Jones wouldn't have gotten very far as a business person, you know? Like, you can't just go around axe-murdering everyone you disagree with. The other motive the townspeople believe Frank Jones may have had were rumors that Josiah Moore was having an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, Dona. According to switchboard operators, Moore called Dona a lot. Like, a lot. And even though it was the Midwest, in my mind, all switchboard operators sounded like they were from Brooklyn. So it probably went like this. Ooh, Dolores, guess who's calling Dona Jones again? (gasps) That cad, Josiah Moore. You know it. He told her he saw her ankles when they were in church. Oh, my God, her ankles? What a slut. Anyway, the switchboard operators claim to have heard Dona telling Josiah it was safe for him to come over. And not for nothing. According to those switchboard operators, one of them heard a fight take place at the younger Jones household one night when the phone was kicked off its cradle. Apparently, Mr. Jones had come home to find his wife, Dona, in a compromising position with another man. And sure, that's some pretty damning information, but there's really no evidence to back it up. All there is is some switchboard operators claiming to have heard things. Regardless of motive, though, it's hard to imagine a prominent member of a tiny community brazenly going through a neighbor's home, maniacally axing all eight occupants to death. Not that a prominent person isn't capable of something like that, just that the risk of being caught seems a bit high. Also, he was 57. And I know 50 is the new 30, but in 1912, 50 was basically the new 80. To explain this, private detective James Newton Wilkerson tried to convince a jury in 1916 that Jones had hired a man named William Mansfield to carry out the murders. I have no idea why Wilkerson became focused on Mansfield. He had no proof, only a belief that Mansfield was also guilty of murdering his own wife, infant, and father-in-law with an axe two years after the Velisca murders, as well as the murders of Jenny Peterson and Jenny Miller in Aurora, Colorado. According to Wilkerson, each of those murders were committed in the same way as the Velisca murders. The chimney of a lantern had been removed, the mirrors all covered, and a basin of bloody water left behind. And all that certainly does point to the strong possibility that the same person committed all those murders. But again, why or how Mansfield came into Wilkerson's sights in the first place, I don't know. And why, with Wilkerson's suspicion that Mansfield committed at least 13 axe murders across three different states, Mansfield wasn't tried anywhere else for any of those murders. You got me. As for the Velisca murders, Mansfield was several hundred miles away that night. Payroll records prove he was working in Illinois on the night of the murders. The next suspect the townspeople of Velisca, Iowa narrowed in on was Reverend George Jacqueline Kelly. Kelly was an immigrant from England, a preacher and a so-called sexual deviant who was known for not being the world's 
most stable human being. In the days before the Velisca murders, Kelly was seen peeking in people's windows in town. It seems the reason people suspected Kelly was because he had been at the same church service as the Moors the day they were murdered. But apparently, Velisca residents basically subscribed to either the Presbyterian or the Methodist variety of Christianity. So it seems to me that the chances that someone might be at either service is about 50-50. Anyway, the rumor was that he saw the Moore family at the service that day, followed them home, and watched them through a small hole in the wall of the adjacent barn. Once they were asleep, he crept in, killed them all, then went back one by one and destroyed their faces, and then hopped a train out of town around 5 a.m. The way people figured, since Lena Stillinger's body was found half-exposed without underwear, the motive for the killing was sexual. But doctors never found evidence of sexual assault, so at least there's that piece of good news in this awful cesspool of disgustingness. Also, as awful as it is, I think usually with sexually motivated crimes, the criminal doesn't completely annihilate everyone else in the house just to get to their victim. Unfortunately, it's easy enough to grab a child without going through the unnecessary task of mass murder. But remember how investigators thought Lena Stillinger had squirmed down in the bed, possibly to evade another axe blow, only to inadvertently expose her lower half? And remember the two-pound slab of bacon that was found in the bedroom where the Stillinger girls had been sleeping? The theory became that Kelly posed Lena's body after killing her or just took advantage of the position she had gotten herself into before he killed her and then used the bacon grease as a personal lubricant while he pleasured himself after killing everyone in the house. I don't even... I can't. Kelly admitted to taking the 5 a.m. train out of Aliska that morning, and an elderly couple came forward and said that Kelly had dropped bloody clothes off at the laundry they owned a few towns over. But both Kelly and the elderly couple later recanted these statements. In 1917, at a grand jury hearing under cross-examination, Kelly admitted to returning to Villisca a week after the murder and asked for a tour of the crime scene disguised as an officer with Scotland Yard. Here's the thing. George Kelly was 5'2 and 119 pounds, which begs two questions. How many incredibly short men were running around Villisca, Iowa in 1912 that Kelly was able to disguise himself at all? Like, you'd think anyone seeing him would be like, are you sure you're not just that tiny weirdo preacher who goes around peering into people's windows? I could see himself disguising himself as a child, maybe. But an officer from Scotland Yard? How dense were the police in Villisca? And two, this guy was one inch taller than me and weighed less than I do. You want me to believe he picked up a full-size axe and brought it down on eight people's heads in complete silence? and then went back and did it again and again? Remember the gouge mark left in the ceiling of Mr. and Mrs. Moore's bedroom that was most likely left by the upswing of the axe before it came down on Mr. Moore's head? What was Reverend Kelly doing to make that mark? Jumping up a good three feet before bringing the axe down? Standing on a chair? Come on. 
Reverend George Kelly was definitely a gross creep. He ran a few ads in local papers of towns he was staying in seeking a, quote, girl stenographer to do, quote, confidential work and specified that she had to be willing to pose as a model. One woman who responded to the ad got a letter from Kelly that a judge described as so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. Was Kelly a nasty pervert? Sure. Be that as it may, though, personally, I don't think he was capable of lifting an axe, much less wielding it dozens of times. Besides, there was someone else who was a much more likely candidate than either Jones or Kelly. Someone who police believed may have been responsible for at least 18 other gruesome murders. Turns out between 1911 and 1912, there were upwards of nearly two dozen victims of at least 10 incidents in which one or more people were killed in their home with an axe. The murders ranged from Washington State to Illinois. They were close to railroad tracks, and the victims were all likely asleep when the murder took place. In a piece about the Velisca murders in Smithsonian Magazine, author Mike Dash notes that Rollin Hudson and his, quote, unfaithful wife were murdered in Paola, Kansas, four days before the Moore family was murdered in Villisca. Now, why it was important to point out that Hudson's wife was unfaithful, I have no idea. It doesn't seem to be pertinent to the story at all. Like, I could understand if they discovered that in every case the murdered wife had been unfaithful. Maybe you could try to point to that as motive, but it seems like this one woman was called out after she died, which just seems... I don't know. Unnecessary? Anyway. There were some weird similarities in some of the murders. In some, but not all of the murders, the murderer covered the victim's face with cloth, washed up in a basin, and had lingered in the house after the murders. In two cases, other than Velisca, the chimney had been removed from a lantern and the wick had been bent. In all but one, an axe was used. Special Agent Matthew McClowry noticed in September of 1911, just five months after a man named Henry Moore, no relation to the Velisca victims, had been released from a prison in Kansas on a forgery charge, the murders began with a family of six in Colorado Springs. The string of similar murders continued until 1912, when Henry Moore was arrested after murdering his mother and grandmother with an axe. After that, according to McClowry, the murders stopped. That definitely doesn't look good for Henry Moore. According to Mike Dash of the Smithsonian, though, Henry Moore isn't considered a good suspect anymore, if only for the fact that it's rare for a serial killer to end their spree with their own family. And his motive for killing his mother and grandmother was to get the deed to the house... But I don't know. It seems to me someone capable of murdering their own mother and grandmother for the deed to a house might also be capable of going on a killing spree just because. Who knows? Maybe he was angry and took it out on people in houses because he didn't have one of his own? 
Of the prominent member of the small town, the tiny preacher-slash-pervert, and the guy convicted of killing his mother and grandmother with an axe, I'm putting my money on the axe murderer as the culprit for the axe murders. For 80 years after the murders in Villisca, people lived in the Moore home and never reported anything weird. But in 1994, Darwin and Martha Lynn bought the house, restored it to look like it would have in 1912, and opened it as a museum, complete with a garish sign out front that reads, The Villisca Axe Murder House, in drippy blood lettering. Darwin Lynn insists that he never paid for advertising, but he also says that the first time a group of ghost hunters contacted him to investigate the house, he, quote, put it in the newspaper. Now, I'm no newspaper ad sales expert, but I'm pretty sure you can't just put something in a newspaper. So to say that he's never paid for advertising might be a little bit of a stretch. But the ghost hunters have brought in the crowds and people swear they've seen ghosts and heard things and doors open and close on their own and all the usual haunted house stuff. I spent 10 precious minutes of my life watching a video posted by the Daily Iowan in which nothing ever happens in the house. So that was useful. The Lynns give tours at just $10 a pop with discounts for seniors. Kids under 12 are free. But you and five of your friends can stay overnight for just 428 bucks, And those are pretty cheap prices. But the Lynns bought the house for $10,000. And with the number of people who come for tours and overnights, the Lynns are definitely getting the last laugh. Here's what I find particularly strange about the Velisca Axe murders. If there was a whole spate of similar murders around that time across a number of states... Why did this one become so popular? Maybe popular is the wrong word to use for such a heinous crime? Why have the Velisca Axe murders garnered so much attention while the others seemingly have not? Could it be that when the Lynns resurrected the house, they resurrected the story with it, and in the age of the internet and 7,000 paranormal reality TV shows, a relatively obscure 100-year-old crime went from a local tale to a national curiosity? If people came along and made every house that saw an axe murder into a tourist destination, would we be like, meh, another axe murder house? You've seen one, you've seen them all, am I right? There is, of course, an even more infamous murder house you can visit. For $300 a night per person, you can stay in the house where Andrew and Abby Borden were axed to death in Fall River, Massachusetts. A tour of the house is $25, pricier than the Velisca murder house, but of course the Borden murders, for whatever weird reason, bored their way into our collective psyche pretty much right away, while the Moores slash Stillinger murders didn't grab a hold of the country's attention until basically someone claimed to have seen a ghost in the house a hundred years later. And while we're mentioning the Borden murders, I can't end without giving you this little nugget of info. John Morse, Andrew Borden's nephew by marriage, who was staying with the Bordens at the time of the murders, and who had an incredibly detailed and some thought questionable alibi for the morning of the Borden murders, lived just 30 miles outside of Villisca, Iowa, at the time of the Moore-slash-Stillinger murders. Admittedly, that was his one and only connection to the murders in Villisca, but that was enough to bring him in for questioning. 
Clearly, he had an alibi for that night as well. Not to mention he would have been around 80, which in 1912 was basically the new 100. John Morse almost definitely did not murder the Moores and the Stillinger girls, but I thought the connection was a weird coincidence worth mentioning. Then again, I suppose one could argue that in a time before everyone and their mother had access to deadly firearms, an axe would be the obvious weapon of choice, so I suppose that makes Moore's connection to the Velisca murders even more tenuous. That's depressing. Do I think that some malevolent force compelled Robert Steve Lorson Jr. to stab himself in the chest in the Moore's bedroom that November night in 2014? No. I suppose one could argue that it's Darwin and Martha Lynn's fault. After all, Lorson wouldn't have been standing in that room if the Lynn's hadn't decided to capitalize on the murders of eight innocent people. But who am I to blame someone for turning tragedy into a money-making opportunity? Have I thanked the sponsors for this show yet? Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. From illegal organ harvesting, to gremlins, to a secret society living underground. I'll walk you through a few stories and we'll find out which ones are true and which ones are urban legends. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 